Funding for Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer is provided by the Foundation at Hearst Castle, where donors and members experience exclusive events that recreate what it was like to be a guest of William Randolph Hearst, from swimming in the iconic Neptune pool to dining in Hearst's private guest house overlooking the Pacific Ocean. The Foundation at Hearst Castle's ongoing mission is to support the conservation and restoration of Hearst Castle while offering youth programs for underserved students. Discover how you can become a member by going to foundation at hearstcastle.com and learn how you can support this unique and invaluable mission. I'm correspondent Tom Wilmer. Come along and join me for a conversation with four-star General Michael Hagee, United States Marine Corps retired. General Hagee served as the 33rd Commandant of the United States Marine Corps before retiring to Fredericksburg, Texas in 2010 to serve as President and CEO of the Admiral Nimitz Foundation. Come along and join the conversation as Hagee shares fascinating insights about his hometown of Fredericksburg, the National Museum of the Pacific War, his admiration for Admiral Nimitz, and fundamental reasons why the United States military is superior to both China and Russia. General Michael Hagee, so good to see you again. You were the 33rd Commandant of the United States Marine Corps. Correct. You went out a four-star general. And now you have this whole new life afterwards. How did you get from Marine Corps headquarters to here in Texas? Well, after I retired from the Marine Corps, uh, I did what most wise guys do. They listened to what their wife wanted to do, and we retired in Annapolis, Maryland, for one simple reason, two grandkids. And I grew up here in Fredericksburg, and I had been invited to join the board. And I thought, what a great idea. I can come home two or three times a year. I can visit with my classmates. I get to write it off of my taxes. So I joined the board. And about a year into being on the board, the individual who had the job I have right now was diagnosed with cancer, and six months later he had passed away. Wow. And he was a naval admiral? Yes, he was a two-star admiral. Yeah. Chuck Groshing. Did a great job here. So the board asked me, would I consider coming here? My wife is from Germany, and uh, she's a city girl, and she's a cellist. She'd been here once or twice for my high school class reunions. Not a good idea. (laughs) Trust me. And so I asked her, what do you think about living in Fredericksburg? And she paused and she said, well, they may have a guitar player down there. (laughs) Actually, we've been here now since uh, 2010. Mm -hmm. I came a little early. We built a house and she wouldn't live anywhere else. She's in a quartet and a trio here. She's found some great friends, great musicians, and Fredericksburg is a great place to live. For a musician, too. For a musician, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a lovely community. People take care of one another. Sort of reminds me of growing up here, even though it's about three times as large as Mm -hmm. when I grew up here. Mm -hmm. But it's a great place to live, so we wouldn't live anywhere else. Interesting. Let's loop back to the genesis of the museum here and as I recall it was the Admiral Nimitz Museum in its first iteration 
Yes, it actually was the Admiral Nimitz Center. It shows the type of man that Admiral Nimitz was. The museum started in the historic hotel here. The hotel was owned by Admiral Nimitz's grandfather, and he ran it in the middle 1800s, mm-hmm. and we're very proud of it. Got a steamboat ship facade on the front. You've seen it, you know. And Nimitz lived there for the first six years. And when they closed the hotel down, because they didn't have plumbing and air conditioning and all that, they closed it down in 63. The city leadership said, we want to put a museum there. They went out and asked Admiral Nimitz if they could use his name. And he said, no. Oh, interesting. A little background. LBJ had told them that if you'll get Nimitz to agree to use his name, you get $5 million for the museum. Wow. Nimitz said no. He came back, told LBJ. LBJ said, go back and out and try again. He did. Admiral Nimitz said, no, I will not have a memorial to me because I did not win the war. The guys and gals, we worked together and we won the war. The guy came back and quit. Next guy went out and said, what if we call it the Admiral Nimitz Museum in honor of all the men and women who fought with you? And he said, yes. And he actually wrote a check for $100. So we got $100 instead of $5 million. <laughs> But it shows mm-hmm. Nimitz was a humble individual, a great leader, but that's what he did. Mm-hmm. In just a moment about Nimitz and his brilliance as a tactician in World War II. What were you most impressed with? I think Nimitz's legacy from World War II, there are a lot of different things, Mm -hmm. Midway probably being the biggest one, but Nimitz's most important legacy is that he found good people, brought them in, and made them successful whether they were admirals or captains or privates or corporals, he made them successful. I believe that that's what his legacy will be. Mm -hmm. Like the best of the best of what you would hope a CEO would be. Absolutely. Find good people, make them successful, and Mm -hmm. you and your organization will be successful. (laughs) Once again, not rocket science. It's not, but how you do it, that's another question. Yeah. Let's go forward. So it's first iteration, it's the Nimitz Museum, but then it morphed into the Museum of the Pacific War in addition. How did that evolution happen? Uh, This podcast is not long enough for that (laughs) entire story. Uh, Cliff Notes. It was a a Cliff Notes is for a couple of years. It was run by essentially the Admiral Nimitz Foundation and the people here. But they quickly determined you cannot run a museum, even a mom-and-pop museum, 25 cent bait sale, you know, one of those. Mm-hmm. And so they gave it to the state, the state of Texas. state of Texas put a commission together, and this commission ran it for 10 years. And here in Texas, we have a sunset clause. And after a commission has been there for 10 years, they review it. And they said, what is this state commission running a museum in Fredericksburg, Texas doing? So they canceled it. And I went to Texas Parks and Wildlife. They do a great job with fishing license, hunting license, and parks not a museum. And then in 2005, it was transferred to the Texas Historical Commission, and it has been that ever since. Just before it was passed over, Congress passed uh, a bill identifying us as the National Museum of the Pacific War, and we've had a great relationship with the Texas Historical Commission since 2005. 
Interesting. So you've built up a lot of order packs. You have incredible stuff here, including a PT boat. We have uh, the, I have an Atlas barge. We also have it. There may be one in Japan. There was a, the Japanese developed a fighter pontoon plane. It never really flew in the war, but from what I've read, it was supposed to be really quite good. It's called the Rex. Pretty sure we have the only Rex completely restored in our museum today. Wow, that's really cool. A couple other items that are exceptional that you're most proud of. We have a PT boat here. And that one you drove all the way around the intercoastal from New Jersey? Yeah, it was a fishing boat up there. And we brought it here. It's been completely restored, mahogany deck, everything. And we dug a hole. We put it in a hole. We built the building around it so it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. We also have a midget submarine, one of the three midget submarines that attacked Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941. We have that one here. Is that the one that trailered around the country and did bomb tours? Exactly. And in fact in 1943 we have a picture of it here in Fredericksburg. Oh wow. Where they're selling bonds Mm -hmm. and then we found it in Florida broken too. It came here. We restored it and then Hawaii believed that it should be there. Mm -hmm. And there was a big fight about that. President Clinton decided that it's in Fredericksburg, we'll leave it there for 10 years, I'll be out of office, and we'll decide then. We were very concerned about that. I wasn't here at the time, Mm -hmm. but the Texas representatives, our two senators, all of our congressmen were very concerned. So there is now a law, our statute in the Texas law books, that says no midget submarine may be transported on any Texas highway. I love it. So it, and it's in cement right now, so it's not going anywhere. <laughs> that's really cool. A little bit more about some of the coolest things. You have a whole, like any museum, you have stuff that's not on display. We have less than 5% of our stuff on the, on the floor at any one time. The artifacts are important, but to me the more more important thing are the stories Mm -hmm. that we're able to tell about those average young Americans who came forward in extraordinary times and did unbelievable things under very challenging conditions. These are 18-year-olds and 19. These are 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And Nimitz was right. They made the difference. I've been lucky in my career. I have visited a lot of militaries throughout the world. Some of them are pretty good, to be quite honest. Of course, I'm an American. <laughs> uh, I think our uh, our four services, there are no better in the world. And it's really quite simple. It's because of the individual young men and women that we have. And they're even better today than when I first came in. Mm-hmm. I was head of strategic plans in Hawaii when I was a two-star. The head of the Chinese Navy came over. This was back in the 90s. And we took him on one of our most advanced cruisers to visit. And we had a guy there, an American, who had lived in China and spoke fluent Chinese. We're pretty sure that they didn't know it, and we had him be the guy. So we wanted to find out what was going on. (laughs) And so they went down, and we had a first-class petty officer sailor explain the weapon system on this ship. And as they left, the admiral told 
the guys around him, Chinese, will never be able to do that. He wasn't talking about the electronics. Mm -hmm. He was talking about that young 20-year-old petty officer who, if you're in China or in Russia, it would have been a lieutenant, lieutenant commander who was doing it, (laughs) not these young guys. That's what makes us good. Interesting. This is way off topic, but not maybe not necessarily so. Russia, the Russian army, did you already know what their state of the state was as a fighting force before? Uh, before they <laughs> handed to them. Uh, of course, the war is still going on. Right. I thought they were better than that, but it didn't take very long to realize that when you train, if everything is a set piece and you don't have to think on your feet and you're never put in a very difficult situation, uh, you don't want to try that for the first time when people are shooting real bullets at you, mm-hmm. and that's what you saw. Both, I felt sorry for the young Russian soldiers, and the officers did not have a real good uh, sense of what they were uh, what they were doing because of their training. And again, that counterpoint versus American military that explains a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, the way we train, we like to, especially uh, out there in. Uh, California at the at the big national training center out there where they try to throw surprises at you and they try to make it just as difficult as they they want you to fail mm-hmm. they'd rather you fail when you're training than on the battlefield okay we could go on and on <laughs> I love it let's go back Helen who worked for you who I adored Helen McDonald yeah one of the things that she was most proud of was when you brought the Japanese military people who served in World War II here. Talk to us about that for a moment. Well, I wasn't here at okay. that time. So that was before you That got was here. before my time, yes. But she told me about it. She was so touched, wasn't she? Yes, the, uh, and we have a lot of Japanese visitors here and really quite proud of what they say when they come to visit. Two things. One, more Japanese need to see this museum. Number two, thank you for not editorializing. You've been to the museum. Mm-hmm. You know that we just tell what happened. Yeah. Both the good, the bad, and the ugly. But you, the individual visitor, you have to interpret that. You have to figure out what that means. We do not tell you what we think it means. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about your programming work kind of out of COVID now where you can have more public presence and whatnot. Well, uh, we've gone back to our, quote, normal programming, Mm -hmm. our our normal commemorations, but with a significant twist. During COVID, we learned how to do what we're doing right now, where we put the program out there on the airways. We stream live many of our commemorations. Uh, We do a lot of webinars, and we're continuing to do that. So when we do a Memorial Day here in Mm -hmm. our Memorial Courtyard, we also broadcast it. Uh When we do Pearl Harbor Day, we broadcast it. So we have both an in-person audience now and a virtual audience. So uh, we are really expanding our educational offerings. But you do live in-person events like you used to have the reenacting of the storming of the beaches of the south we still do that we still do that we do what we call it living history and we actually 
put some of those performances on YouTube now. We've actually learned mm-hmm. how to do that. We were headed in that direction, but COVID was a significant forcing function. Interesting. Going forward, looking into the future, what do you see the evolution of the museum? Right now, several comments on that. We are renovating the Bush Gallery, which is the main museum, the main gallery that focuses on World War II in the Pacific. And we're doing a major renovation on that, probably going to be two years uh, before it's going to be finished. And how's, how's it going to differ? In a couple of ways. Number one, we've learned a lot about interpretation. We realize that we cannot tell everything that happened, but what we want to do is we want, regardless of whether you're male, female, white, black, Latino, you name it, Mm -hmm. whether you're young or old, when you walk into that museum, we want you to be able to identify with someone who's there. We do a pretty good job or it's going to be much better. Because once you identify with the individual, then it starts to mean something to you. I remember when I was at the Naval Academy, these old World War II admirals would come in. I couldn't identify with them. I, they, they, were, they, they were way <laughs> above me. You need someone your age mm-hmm. and a little bit with your experience. We're, we're opening on Friday. We're opening, or soft opening on Saturday, we're opening a children's exhibit. And we decided that what we should do in the children's exhibit is pretend that we're a kid, not in the Pacific, here Mm -hmm. in the United States. So we have three scenarios, three exhibits. You're on the farm, you're growing up on a farm, and you have an individual who talks to you. He's the same age as you. He's on the TV screen talking with you. And then there's another individual that talks to you. This is how it was to live in the city. And it's not the same individual. Could be different race, could be different sex. And then we have the third one. Wanna guess what the third one is? You're in a internment camp. You're a Japanese American in an internment camp. So those are the three exhibits that we want to have them to start to identify what was it like Mm -hmm. to be my age growing up there. So that's on the museum, and the museum is very important. We're also going to allow you to take a virtual tour of the museum. We're in Fredericksburg, Texas, an hour from the nearest airport. You can still get here, but we're an hour from the nearest airport. Even though we have 1.4 million visitors a year, we're not in L.A., we're not in San Francisco. So... The museum is important, but we're doing a couple other things. We have a significant vector that's talking about education. We do education here. If you want to know something about World War II in the Pacific, and I'm just not talking about tactics, but what about the socialization? What about race relationships? What about how people came together from all walks of life, from the country and city? If you want to know anything about that time, we want you to, maybe we'd love for you to come here, but we, we're going to have educational programs out there that you can uh, participate in. We've already contacted teachers throughout the United States. We have had classes, not just on what happened in World War II, what is patriotism? What is socialization? What does citizenship really mean? And we think a lot of those lessons 
that were learned in World War II are relevant today, mm -hmm. are absolutely relevant today. So those would be core teaching moments that you would hope to impart to the kids today. Exactly. And we know that we're not the deciders of that. We want to hear from the teachers and the parents about what they would like for their kids to hear. Mm -hmm. And we're listening to that. And right now, we're providing it free to any class that would like to do it. Have you had any epiphanous moments from the kids or teachers, things that you hadn't thought of? I thought of it, but it was reinforced. We did two middle schools in Ghana, Africa. Oh, wow. I did not participate. I just sat back and watched. And they spoke English, obviously. We were lucky in the subject that we picked. It was on Pearl Harbor. So we were doing Pearl Harbor, and I was watching the faces and bored, bored. Doris Miller was a black messman yes. who had no training, and when the Japanese attacked, he ran up, grabbed a big machine gun and started shooting at them and then his skipper a white captain was wounded and he tended to him we showed pictures of him and we told his story and all of a sudden they were interested yeah. why just what i was talking about before there's someone who looks like me mm -hmm. and okay i'm a little bit younger but a young guy and look what he did they we had them. That's great. And everyone there saw it, and that was one of the motivations to make sure we do a much better job during mm -hmm. our renovation of the Bush Gallery. In the movie Pearl Harbor, that was a real touching scene. Do you remember that in the movie? Oh, in Pearl Harbor, yeah. yes. I was disappointed with Midway because I wanted them to show that, and they did not show that story in Midway, but... Yeah. They did show Pearl Harbor in Midway, yeah. as you know. Yeah. Anything closest to your heart that you want to share? One other vector I would like to mention before that. We have a tremendous archive. We're in the process of digitizing it. Our goal is to digitize everything that we have so that we preserve it for generation after generation after generation. And anyone who wants to see something that we have, as long as they have an internet connection, they can get to it. Very accessible archives. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we believe with those two things, digitizing our archives, doing the education, we are providing a service out to all, not only Americans, but anyone who, who wants to look at this, and that these significant lessons, once again, not necessarily the tactical ones, but the real-life lessons on what you do when mm -hmm. things turn bad are still relevant today, and you can learn from how these young and older guys handled it. I would say the thing that most excites me, and this is probably contrary to a little bit of what people are saying today, I've been around for a while, and I've had the opportunity to be both in the military and now out of the military since uh, 2007 to work with young people. <laughs> they are great! They are eye-watering. You give them leadership, you give them some motivation, you help them, and they will do unbelievable things. And as I said before... So I you have hope for the upcoming generation. 
I do have hope for the upcoming generation. I remember when I was going up here, my dad was sure we were going to hell in a hand car <laughs> because we like rock and roll. People say, oh, the time has never been worse. I mean, we're so divided, and what are we going to do? Anyone who says that has not read a book about the Civil War and hasn't read other books, yeah, it's a tough time, and I'm disappointed in some of the stuff that is going on, but in general, I'm not disappointed in our young people. And with a little leadership and a little education, they're going to do fine. I was with a rear admiral the other day, retired, and he was dismayed at the numbers and how hard it is in recruiting young guys to join the military in all the branches. Any thoughts on that, on how you turn that around? Uh, yes. Part of this, what I was talking about, education part, mm -hmm. and what these uh, young guys and gals did, and have continued to do even, even today. But I think that the the most important thing are for guys like me and gals that have been in the military, both on active duty and retired, to go out and talk with young kids and also their parents. That's where it comes from. And some of the some of the uh, guidance counselors, a little unfair, but not a whole lot of them mentioned. You know, the service is the way to go. Colin Powell joined, had no intention of staying. Thank goodness he did. He thought it it'd be okay but he got in there and he found out hey I like this and I'm pretty good at it some of the individuals don't have a chance to experience that less less than one percent of Americans know anyone who's in the armed forces today the admiral was saying that it's basically familial you know it's a family the kids and whatnot it's a very tight recruitment world. Uh, when I was commandant, I got to know several individuals and said, you know, I was really mad at my son. I was really mad at my daughter when they joined the Marine Corps. I told them, you are wasting your life. Why are you doing this? Yeah, okay, you're having a little problem at school, but you can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. After they'd been in the service for about a year, you know what they did? They came back and said, General Hagee, thank you very much. Oh, wow. You have changed my son. The Marine Corps has changed. The Army has changed my daughter. Most of them got out. But those four years, they got out and they did great. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to go back to the draft. I don't advocate going back to the draft. It's incumbent up on us to let those young guys and gals know that it's there. It's an opportunity. And I know four years when you're 18 sounds like forever, <laughs> but actually, <laughs> actually it's not. Yeah. And I think for many of them, at least the ones I've talked with who have done it, they go into college and they're much better. Mm -hmm. John McCain, who we talked about a long time ago, his political action guy, they sent me to Grand Canyon because they were trying to pass legislation for veterans funding. And so they had me interview the head of Grand Canyon Airways and the Papillon. Both guys were vets, the CEOs. They were hiring pretty much 100% veterans. And they had this me interview a Marine who was out 18 months, Lance Corporal, and he started as a customer service guy. 
Six months later, he's managing half the ground <laughs> operations, and he goes, they throw problems at me, and I'm going, this is not a problem. This is a piece of cake. You know, and that was a classic example of what you learn in the military. They, they yeah. learn how to... And you can learn in other places, but the military is a uh, is a good place for some, not for everyone, right, right. for some to start. We don't need everyone, and the services draw different types of individuals. Of course, Marines think that we're the, the service, mm-hmm. and rightly so, the Army, the Navy, and, and the Air Force, and we kid each other about our different cultures, but we're all proud of being on the, on the same team, and so you learn to work together. And, you know, the, another thing you learn, guys don't come out of fighting hole knowing that they could be killed. To be quite honest, for the country, they come out for, in my opinion, they come out for two reasons. Number one, they're not going to let the individuals down. That They're not going to let their team down. Mm-hmm. And number two, they believe in something larger than themselves. And you learn that's why a problem that's not a problem. Yep. No one's shooting at me. This is not <laughs> can this be a problem exactly. You talked about the Russians. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that the reason the Russians wouldn't come out of the fighting holes and when the and some of them in Ukraine and turned and ran, they had no trust in the guy on the right and the guy on the left. They had no trust on their leadership. And they had zero trust on their national leadership. Our guys have that. Our gals have that. Yeah. And that makes a significant difference. And you've learned that in the military. Yeah. Another quick aside, my best friend is Lieutenant Colonel Marine Corps. He was an A4 driver. And he taught classes for officers. And one of the things that he, the subject was don't do something expecting to get credit for it or a pack on the back because you probably won't. You understand that point? Oh, 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 absolutely. In fact, guys do not want to let their, and gals, service individuals do not want to let their units down. They would do anything for that unit. And that's one of the things that boot camp does to you. Sorry, Hagee, it's not about you. It never was about you. It's all about your team. And can your team produce the results that they need to produce. And it is, you're okay. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't, then you got to figure out how to help do that. And that's why, back to your point, this is not a problem. My team can do it. Piece of cake, yeah. All right, I've kept you enough. i going to let you go. But before we go, where would you direct somebody to learn more about here, Fredericksburg, the museum? Go to our website, pacificwarmuseum.org, or Google anything along that. It'll there it'll go. bring you right here. Michael Hagee, thank you for taking the time and sharing. Well, thank you very much. This is really cool. I'm honored. And I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from Fredericksburg, Texas. We'll see you here. Funding for Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer is provided by the Foundation at Hearst Castle, where donors and members experience exclusive events that recreate what it was like to be a guest of William Randolph Hearst, from swimming in the iconic Neptune pool to dining in Hearst's private guesthouse overlooking the Pacific Ocean. 
The Foundation at Hearst Castle's ongoing mission is to support the conservation and restoration of Hearst Castle while offering youth programs for underserved students, preserving the past and inspiring future generations of dreamers. These children experience a world of science, technology, engineering, art, and math at Hearst Castle STEAM, along with studying the legacy of Julia Morgan, one of the most important women in the history of engineering and architecture. The foundation at Hearst Castle not only changes the lives of children, but also provides lifetime memories and unrivaled experiences for our generous donors and members. Discover how you can become a member by going to foundation at hearstcastle.com and learn how you can support this unique and invaluable mission. You've been listening to the Lowell Thomas award-winning travel show Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, a featured podcast on NPR.org's podcast directory. You are invited to subscribe to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer on NPR.org, NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher.com, and more than 20 other podcast channels around the world. To learn more about Tom Wilmer's journeys around America and the world, log on to ThomasWilmer.com. This is Roseanne Cash, and I'm sitting here with Tom Wilmer. Please support your local NPR station.